Colossians 1, starting here at verse 9. For this cause we also, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you and to desire that ye may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding, that ye might walk worthy of the Lord unto all pleasing, being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all might according to his glorious power, unto all patience and long suffering with joyfulness, giving thanks unto the Father, which hath made us meet to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light, who hath delivered us from the power of darkness and hath translated us into the kingdom of his dear Son, in whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins, who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature. For by him were all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they are th- be thrones or dominions, principalities or powers. All things were created by him and for him. And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence. So far, let us pray. Lord God, as we just turn to the word and as we meditate on the excellence of Christ this morning and on his worthiness, on his preeminence, I pray that you would draw our hearts into a a disposition of worship. I pray, Lord, that you would move our minds away from distractions, that we would be focused on the word, the living word, through the written word this morning. Give me wisdom to bring the word faithfully. Lord, unstop ears. Open eyes to behold the riches of the Lord Jesus Christ. In his name I pray. Amen. So the text this morning is Colossians um, 1 verse 15a, where it says, Who is the image of the invisible God? So that will be our theme this morning. Who is the image of the invisible God? Now many years ago, my brother was asked to be a speaker at a dairy conference, and so he agreed to do the the engagement, and so a short biography was requested, and a picture had to be sent in on a, for a brochure that would um, just be handed out to all those going to the seminar. So when the brochure was finally handed out, the picture and the biography did not match. They had mixed two people up, so everybody that came to that talk was expecting a different face when he came up there, and I will leave it for those who were attending to decide if they were disappointed or not, but that doesn't matter. But the essence is that a wrong image was placed beside the information. And similarly, here in Colossians, Paul is answering the charge that false teachers have brought forward where they took the image of Jesus and put out wrong information. They twisted things, they distorted things. And so the Jesus that was known, Jesus of Nazareth, was no longer what the Bible teaches him to be. And so Paul sets the record straight. And so Jesus, in the eyes of false teachers, was just merely a moral teacher who went to great lengths to deny his body so that his spirit could achieve some sort of a higher, elevated form of reality. Simply put, the false teachers degraded Jesus. And that is common, right? False teachers, cults, and you name it, all kinds of... Ideas out there always degrade Jesus, bring him down, make him less than what he is in reality. And so Paul sets the record straight in one of the most glorious letters of uh, Christology that was ever written. And as we maybe want to remember the context here of Colossians, 
Paul scopes the redemptive plan of the Father in the verses we read earlier on, and it is all accompanied through, as you notice in verse 13, the kingdom of his dear son, literally in the Greek, the kingdom of the son of his love, a peculiar love covenanted from eternity for the son is vested in Jesus Christ. And so he is no mere mortal that we are thinking about this morning. Verses 15 through 17 demonstrate the supremacy of Christ over the first creation. And verses 18 through 20 demonstrate Christ's supremacy over the second creation. So that at the end of the day, walking away from Colossians, you should have one central theme. Jesus Christ preeminent over everything. Lord of history. Worship him. That's the response we should be having. So which Jesus have you sung your praises to this morning? Because when you grow up in the church, you sing along. Your parents tell you, you know, make sure you sing. But are you singing because you know him? Know him as he is. That's the question we should be asking ourselves. And perhaps we have a right view of Jesus But functionally, we find ourselves regularly losing sight of his preeminence. And so we want to feed that this morning, a knowledge of the preeminence of Christ. And so I have four points to bring out from this phrase this morning. First of all, it would be a creational backdrop. Secondly, it would be a core identity. Thirdly, it will be a critical manifestation. And fourthly, it will be a consummate unveiling. So creational backdrop, core identity, critical manifestation, and consummate unveiling. Some big words there. We'll unpack them for you. They all start with a C. That's why I had to pick them. So first of all, creational backdrop. And it makes sense that we look back to creation. Because when you hear image, right? Anything made in the image of God brings us back to Genesis 1, where God clearly says... The Bible says, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he him. Male and female created he them. As the unique creation of God, man was given the likeness of God. And this is expressed in all sorts of ways. What does it mean to be made in the image of God? We can think of the ways we have the ability to think, our minds, our awareness, We can think of the ways in which we have consciousness and morals also to display mercy and justice and truth. You see, part of being made in the image of God is a moral category, is an awareness category, a sentience. But probably more, it is also the dominion charge that God gave man. As God orchestrated a massive dominion over all of created realm, he gives to man the peculiar domain of being fruitful and multiplying and mirror him, mirroring him in having dominion over this earth. And so we are like sub-regents, sub-rulers to be like him in rule. Before the fall, Adam and Eve were able to express the image of God in a degree that in this fallen world we can no longer do. Now there are some that will teach that we no longer image God after the fall. But I don't think that's the case. After the fall, the Bible is emphatic in two places in particular. Genesis 9, 6 says this, that whoso sheds the blood of any man, by man shall his blood be shed, which is warrant for capital punishment, side note. And then it says this, why? 
Why is that important? It says, for in the image of God made he man. So this is post-fall, this is post-flood, and God upholds the identity of man as being made in his image. The other verse is in the New Testament, is in James, where he's talking about how we speak to one another and how people were cursing one another, and then it says, how dare we curse one another, cursing man who are made in the similitude or the likeness of God. So those are creational themes that are still present in the fallen world. Do you see that? Do you see the unique privileged position that every person on this planet has, including the unborn? From the slums of Calcutta to the rugged hunters in Siberia, to the undiscovered people potentially on small islands yet, to the executives at Microsoft and Google, to the person sitting beside you this morning, to you yourself, you and I, we still bear God's image. Do you believe that? And since God values himself, Above all, and he ought to because he's the greatest of all beings. God is insulted when we insult and mock a fellow human being and curse them and cut them off and consign them in our judgment to hell. And that is not our prerogative to do. God alone is the judge of all. And how dare we do that? Do you see your fellow image bearer in the light of being... um, made in the image of God? Do you stand in awe of the birth of a newborn as another person who is made after his image? You know, especially in times like ours, you know, it's funny, I wrote this sermon 14 years ago or something like that. And I had to think, wow, the times have changed. We are dealing more than ever with an identity crisis. Right? Things are totally twisted right now. A time where modern gender dogma, we have all signs of kinds of identities being driven by people's sexual orientation, as if that's what defines someone or gender identity. No, we must reaffirm more than ever that we are made after the image of God and we are not identified by feelings, by societal norms and pushes, but by God's design. More than ever, we need to be people rooting right back to Genesis 1.27. Now, when God chose to create man as image bearers, he chose man to represent himself to represent God to all of creation. Which is why when we mess up and when the dominion mandate gets distorted and gets up, turned upside down, then Adam's representation messes things up. Then man has distorted God's um, worth to creation. Now notice Adam's representation is a limited representation. We get the word likeness used for Adam and Eve, right? It is a representation then, this is really important, as image bearers, man represents God in a derived fashion, which means something that comes from something else, secondary. It's a degree that corresponds to the perfect counterpart. 
It is partial. Because as a created being, man, you and me, mankind, we are limited because we are finite. We are not infinite. We are creatures. And even then, our purpose to demonstrate God's glory is still to be executed to creation. We have a world that is chasing hollow dreams, scurrying about for the next fleeting pleasure. Perhaps you, that's you this morning. You can't wait to get out of here so you get to do whatever you feel like doing. You think of the temptations of sin. I was thinking about this yesterday. You get tempted to do something because the immediate, the self-gratification seems like it's worth it. And we all know the feeling, the guilt, when we grasp onto those things which we as image bearers ought not to be doing don't we we must remember that we were made for so much more it used to be that people would memorize catechisms the Westminster Catechism's first question and answer is probably one of the most important to remember to know to memorize and to have stamped before you when you are tempted and when you are on a trajectory that is not God's trajectory what is the chief end of man Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. Put that before you. As image bearers, the chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. There is no greater purpose. I asked a man this summer, we were unloading some seed by the tractor, and I asked him, I said, what are you living for? You know what he said? I've never thought about that. This was a church-going man. He had never thought about that. He, he, he grew up in the system, but he never thought about purpose. What a serious, serious shame that is. You see, sin has put such a massive distortion on mankind's ability to be faithful as image bearers because he has no purpose. And morals are self-determined rather than reflecting of God to the point in which man will run the image of God through the mud. How God-reflecting is it when we consider how we so quickly treat each other like dirt? We want to be on the top, so we'll press the other people down. We try to use other people and manipulate them to get our way. We mar God's beautiful creation by acting as calloused, selfish consumers rather than caretakers and stewards of what God has given us. You see, climate worship is completely not reflecting God's image at all, but using the environment to the glory of God is the way we ought to be stewards of this domain. And so the world hijacks something and turns it into an idol. The Apostle Paul wrote that man in his fallenness, Romans 1.23, changed the glory of the uncorruptible God into an image made like to corruptible man and to birds and to four-footed beasts and creeping things. Matthew Henry puts it this way. He says, It was the greatest honor God did to man that he made man in the image of God. But it is the greatest dishonor man has done to God that he has made God in the image of man. Human rebellion turns everything on its head and it's in our own hearts to do that. Do you believe that? 
You know, that's the funny thing. Is, oh, yeah, the world out there, that's the problem. No, 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 the Bible says the problem is within. God gets turned into some derivative image. Creation becomes more glorious and worthy of worship, and man makes God lowercase g. And that is the scandal of idolatry. Have you seen how natural, deplorable, have you seen our naturally deplorable condition in which our sin has degraded the glory of God? Perhaps this week, kids, you were fighting with your siblings for a toy. Perhaps teenager, you were vying for attention and you used rebellion to get your way. Perhaps adults among us this morning, you were manipulating for power and position. See, the, the light of the glory of God is shrouded by the darkness of human sin. Our image bearing is now a dim flicker of what Adam had at creation. Uh, to think about this, and it's funny because I wrote this many years ago and I talked about taking a picture and going to pick up the prints and times have changed, haven't they? We take them with our phones now, but even now sometimes you take a picture with your phone and it's blurry. And it's because either the image shifted really quickly or you shifted your hand and it's blurry, right? The focus is out. Something moved, something shifted. You can still make out what it's supposed to be, it to represent, but it's distorted. It bears resemblance, but it's lacking precision, right? Adam, before the fall, is still that blurry image in which we see the representation he ought to have. But he's a created being, so it's not going to be perfect. After the fall, that same blurry and yet image that we clearly know what it represents has ink splattered all over it. It has distortions. And so it's even worse. It's harder. It's totally marred. And the more man gives in to sin, the less the image of God shines. And that brings me to the second point. Core identity. Jesus is the infinite image of God imaged in the incarnate Son. Because Paul, taking that creational backdrop, erupts into a doxology, a hymn of praise, because that's what this whole section is here. It is a hymn of praise to God. For Paul, the image and the facts of who Jesus is is so much more than merely creaturely. In Greco-Roman culture, hymns were sung to deities, to divine beings. And Paul unmistakably takes the hymn and ascribes all worship to Jesus Christ. You notice that with Jesus, you go through the Bible, nowhere will you see the word likeness describe him with respect to God. There's no such thing as the likeness of God in him. It's always he is the image of God. Because the word likeness is not enough. In Hebrews, he's called the exact representation to capture the weight of who this Jesus is. Notice the qualitative word in our text. It says, the image of the invisible God. By doing this, the Apostle Paul is setting the bar of imaging Jesus to its highest degree because to take him who is invisible and to now make him visible in Jesus Christ means that Jesus captures something that no one else captures. He captures the invisible essence and makes it plain to man. 
There's very few places in the Bible where it talks about the invisible God. One of them is a doxology to the Father. It's in uh, Timothy, 1 Timothy 6. Turn with, there, with me to that, please. 1 Timothy 6, verse 15. Paul erupts here and he says about the Father who is the blessed and only potentate, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, who only hath immortality, dwelling in light which no man can approach unto, whom no man hath seen nor can see, to whom be honor and power everlasting. Amen. Notice those attributes that come together with this invisible God. It is immeasurable power. This God has enduring immortality. He will never die. He is from all eternity. He is, right? That's his, his self-disclosure. Jehovah Echyeh, which means God who is. With unequaled rule we see him, the potentate. And with absolute bright purity, not a hint of distortion, that is the Father. That is the God we worship. Anything else is created again. Only God has those attributes. Those are called the incommunicable attributes of God. And so for Jesus of Nazareth to image that invisible God is an astounding statement. And Jesus must share then in all of these aspects, all of these qualities must be seen not only in God then, but also in Jesus Christ. You know, I said earlier, right? I said, as Adam's image-bearing is derivative, that is not the case with Jesus Christ. With Jesus, his image-bearing is substantial. It is part of who he is. And Jesus then, think about this, taking 1 Timothy 6, and linking it to the Father, and now linking this image-bearing, this means that Jesus Christ necessarily has immeasurable power, necessarily has enduring immortality, absolute rule, and total purity. That is our Lord Jesus Christ. He is no mere mortal. And can you imagine, for all those 33 years he walked this earth, people did not totally know that, and yet he walked among us. And where Adam was like that blurry picture, and where we're the blurry picture with ink splash on it, the Lord Jesus is perfect precision. It is everything into exact focus without one drop of distortion. All the glories and praises and excellencies of the Father are then equally shining forth in the Son. To make the Father more than the Son would be wrong. We sang it. Holy, holy, holy God. Though three, yet in essence one. That is our God. The Nicene Creed trying to capture this because it was already attacked early on in Christianity. The first 400 years of Christianity was always an attack on who is this Jesus. The Nicene Creed affirms this. I believe in one God. The Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth and of all things visible and invisible. And one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, 
begotten of the Father before all worlds. We call that the eternal generation of the Son. God of gods, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father by whom all things were made. Did you know one letter in the Greek, an iota, made all the difference here because the heretics wanted to change the word homoousion into homoousion. One letter. And the difference is this. Of the same substance, homoousion, to homoousion, like substance. That's all they wanted. We can affirm the creed. Just add one letter. And he's less. And the Nicene Creed says, no, no, no. He's of the same substance, homoousion, with the Father. He is God. To relegate Christ to the realm of creation is to do violence to his glory. And that is why it is a serious thing when Jehovah's Witnesses knock at your door because they have relegated the eternal homoousion, him of one substance, to less. They're no different than the Colossian heretics. Jesus is the uncreated the immortal, the eternal. Uh, be careful here, because you might be sitting here this morning while well, I already knew this stuff. I heard the stuff in Sunday school. My parents told me, three in one, Trinity. I've believed that all my life. Be careful, because if you believe this, then everything about Jesus changes. Do you let this stagger your mind? Though in essence, only one, the Trinity, three in one. Who can comprehend that? Do you let that sink in? Do you worship God the way we ought to worship God? John Owen would even says it must affect our prayers. He talks about fellowship with God the Father, fellowship with God the Son, fellowship with God the Spirit, and at the same time, we are praying to one God. You see, this has an essence, an essential um, degree affecting our prayers, our worship, everything. And this brings me to the third point, critical manifestation, because he says so much more. Because Jesus is more than just representation, pristine representation. Jesus is also manifestation, critical manifestation. Because the eternal Son assumed flesh, and this Son who assumed flesh walked among us. He had no place to lay his head, but he would walk perfectly among us, and then he would triumph over death and hell, and then this God-man would rise up and ascend into the heavens from there to establish the eternal kingdom of the God-man, the Son of God. And what this means then is that in his incarnation, in becoming flesh, assuming flesh, Jesus shows us Perfectly, the Father. And this was questioned. Who questioned this? It's when Jesus was about to go. He says, I go to prepare a place for you, and we know what happens. Thomas says, well, how can that be? Show us the Father. And Jesus says, he who has seen me has seen the one who sent me. John 1.18 says it this way. It says, no man hath seen God at any time, because God is invisible. And then it says, the only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father, he hath declared him. You notice what that says? Relationship. 
Father's Son, the only begotten Son, and at the same time, essence, he hath declared him. In that little statement is packaged the Trinity and the displaying of the singular God. Without Jesus Christ manifesting God, we would know nothing truly about God. For he would have been, as John Owen says, eternally invisible to us. This has some bearing on how we read the Bible. You think about everything in the written word. A lot of people begin reading their Bibles and the concept of incarnation and seeing Jesus in Matthew 1 verse 1 in the New Testament. But Jesus walks through the pages of the Old Testament where we have the the apparitions of the angel of the Lord showing himself, right? The, The angel of Jehovah speaking with uh, Abraham at the Oaks of Mamre as an example, or the angel of the Lord coming in his glory into the tabernacle, we are seeing precursors to who? Who is that? We call them in theology Christophanies, Christophanos, Christ revelations, but they're also called something else. What are they called? Theophanies, God manifestations. It is because as Christ reveals himself in the pages of the Old Testament, he is revealing already God in the Old Testament. And so the revelation of God does not begin in Matthew 1.1. It begins in Genesis and it ends in Revelation. All of Scripture declares Christ and Christ declares God. There's an implication from this. It means this. Everything relates to Jesus Christ. And therefore, and only therefore, it reveals the Father. We cannot glorify God rightly without seeing him through the Son. No Jesus with an N-O. No God. Knowing Jesus, we know God. It's essential to our thinking. Do you confess to be a Christian this morning among us? And a Christian confession then exclusively, exclusively proclaims that the God we worship has been made visible in Jesus Christ. Turn with me, please, to 1 Timothy three sixteen. is interesting because we'll start here at verse 15. The Apostle Paul writing to Timothy, his, his protege student, he says in verse 15, but if I tarry long, in other words, stays away for a while, he says, that thou mightest madest know how thou oughtest to behave thyself in the church of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of truth. That's what the church is. It is the church of the living God. It is to be a place of truth. It is to be a pillar of And then look what it says next. And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen of angels, 
preached unto the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up into, the glo- into glory. You see, the pillar, the church, is to hold fast to that central confession of verse 16. God was manifest in the flesh. That's what it means, ultimately, as a church, to hang on to, to hold fast to everything that is proclaimed in that little package of verse 16. It's an amazing verse to hang on to. There's no room then in Christianity for syncretism, which means blending more stuff in. We have no room for Islam. We have no room for Hinduism, for atheism. Those are false worships. We must be singular in our worship of Jesus Christ. You might be thinking at this point, yeah, but how can God be known in a man? It almost seems like the incarnation, Jesus taking on our assuming flesh, is a divine retreat. It's almost like regressive revelation of God. Well, remember I brought up Philip earlier, who questions Jesus, and Jesus says, he who has seen me has seen the Father. You know what Jesus says right after that? He says, the words which I speak unto you, I speak not of myself, but the Father that dwelleth in me, he doeth, and you'd expect the words, but it says the works. Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father in me, there's our unity, and then he says this, or else believe me for the very works' sake. You see, you cannot read the testimony of Jesus Christ's life on this earth, his works, without walking away and saying with Thomas the skeptic, my Lord and my God. You think of the works of Jesus, the miracles he performed, the casting out of devils, the raising of the dead, the stilling of the storms, the feeding of the thousands. Consider the wisdom of our Lord Jesus, the authoritative teaching on the Sermon on the Mount, the profundity of his parables. Have you understood how how profound they are and yet how simple they are? The answers that Jesus gave to those who sought to trap him. Is it lawful to give taxes to Caesar? Or what happens when this guy has seven wives or this woman has seven husbands? Whose husband shall she be? All of these Questions to stump the Lord of glory. And he gives such profound answers that they walk away in shock. These temple guards come back to the rulers and the rulers say, what has happened to you? You know what they say? Never has a man spoken like this man. Marvel at the power of our Jesus. He had the power to forgive sins. And they said, no man can forgive sins but who? But God alone, and yet he says, thy sins be forgiven thee. How dare he wipe the slate clean of someone in the, in the courts of heaven unless he is God himself. And he does. Go home and read again the miracles. Hear the parables. Behold the wisdom. Be astonished at the love, the grace of Jesus of Nazareth. And you will have to walk away. And say, Jesus manifests God in a way that no one ever has. And so it is not divine retreat or divine retrogression. But the revelation of Jesus Christ assuming flesh is the revelation of God. It is progressive revelation. And you know why we say that? 
It is because in Hebrews 1 it says that formerly God spoke through the prophets, but in the last days he has spoken us how? Through the Son. Through the Son. The highest revelation. You see, God is always accommodating to our puny minds in the book of Scripture. Stooping down. Calvin would say he lisps to us because we are so small. And that the eternal God would assume flesh without himself changing one iota is amazing. You think of that because that's what people say. Oh, Jesus took on flesh, so he must have changed. And that never happened because if Jesus changed God, then God is changing. And Malachi 3.6 says, I am God, I change not. And you know what? I am reading books right now where they are denouncing, limiting, doing away with the doctrine of immutability of God. Watch out for that. Read your theological journals carefully. Because if God changes, the whole house falls. So let us worship instead him who freely chose to display the divine majesty, who can condescend and speak to creatures, who can assume flesh, and at the same time, it says in verse 17 of our text, uphold all things by the word of his power. Who can compare to such power in the Lord Jesus? Who can hold a candle to the worth of his majesty? Who dares compete with the glory of Jesus Christ? Will you not do away with all competitors in your life? Everything that seeks to draw you in to worship stuff as cheap Say, away with you cheap phonies. Be gone, perishable dust. I repent of finite thinking. And instead, believers, let us lift our eyes upward. Let us say, come, son of righteousness. Save me, O thou great redeemer. Start again on your knees. Renounce this world and turn to Christ. That brings me to the last point consummate unveiling because as the sun unveils the glory of God it is all going to the end to the consummation now why do so many people in these last days of the revelation of Jesus Christ brush him off why can't we go to the neighbors to our friends to our children and their jaw drops their eyes are open they're like Wow, I must worship him. Well, we're told that. And we're told how that relates to the image-bearing son. Turn with me, please, to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Second Corinthians chapter 4, starting here, verse 3. It says, but if our gospel be hid, it is hid to them that are lost, in whom the God of this world hath blinded the minds of them which believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, and notice these words, who is the image of God, should shine unto them. For we preach not ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord, and ourselves your servants for Jesus' sake. We'll stop there for a second. You notice what it says. 
why the unbeliever doesn't worship him. It says this, first of all, where Christ is preached, the blazing light of the glory of God is proclaimed because gospel preaching exalts God. Christo preaching is theophonic preaching. It's preaching of God, nothing less. And the unbeliever at core doesn't see him, it says, because he is spiritually blind, because the God of this world has blinded him. Now, how does that work? It is because of the fall where the God of this world introduced deception. And Adam and Eve took it. And the curse landed on all. And everybody is born spiritually blind. Why don't our loved ones believe? Why do we see the media slander the name of the ever-glorious Son? Why do our neighbors use His name as a curse word? Why do you perhaps reject Him? Spiritual blindness manifesting itself in unbelief prevents anyone from seeing glory. And people get so proud. We're so arrogant that we think we can see and do and act. But the very essence of reality, seeing glory, we can't even do. I'll never forget years ago, it's probably around the time I wrote this sermon, there, a flyer came in the mail. It was when HDTV, HDTVs were just coming out and there was this movie on there, 300 I believe it was called, and on the caption it was this, Behold the Glory of HD. Instantly, my mind went to Isaiah. Behold your God. And it describes the greatness of God. And we're going to turn plastic and compare it to God. Screens? Movies? Are we kidding ourselves? But that's what this spiritual blindness does. It makes that glorious. And so glory itself gets completely just toppled over. Down the rung, as it were. You know, this blindness makes us cold and utterly dead. And our pride shows itself to be absolutely delirious, foolish, folly. But the next verse, look at it. In verse 6, it is God acting and it pulls us right back to where? Let's read it. For God who commanded the light to shine out of darkness hath shined in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. What is it doing there? What is the Apostle Paul doing? Remember how image bearing spans from creation to new creation. Well, guess what? Paul goes back to creation where God says, let there be light. And the darkness was overcome and there was light. And in the same way where God is at work to image distorting beings, he says, let there be light. Eyes are opened, ears are unstopped. And they see glory. And when man sees glory, he will run to it instead of to these idols. And that is why people then will choose for God. That's amazing. And so we go back always to the creational power of God. And that is also why at that point, look, notice what it says. To give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in who? The face of Jesus Christ. Because believers whose eyes have been opened, or those who hear the gospel whose eyes have been opened, will see Jesus. 
And in Jesus, they will see God and love him. And that is why we get songs like, tell me the story of Jesus. Oh, knowing you, Jesus, knowing you, there is no greater thing. That is why when you meet believers anywhere on the planet and you speak of Jesus, their hearts are warmed, smiles come on their faces. That is why the people in abject poverty, the people in persecution, and those in high-rise towers, if they are believers, they will come together in union, bowing as servants. As Paul says here, right, we are servants for Christ's sake. And they will find unity in Jesus. Christians, we love Jesus, don't we? If your heart is not warm to Jesus, maybe you never know this Jesus, and you never knew him. Oh, the knowledge of Jesus is everything. And that is why when we behold him more, that glory we so love, it starts to change us. In fact, you just have to look a couple verses back. Remember, there was no chapter breaks early on in these letters. Look at chapter 3. Start here at verse 17. Now, the Lord is that spirit, and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. And then it says this, but we all, this is the Christian, with open face beholding, as in a glass, the glory of the Lord are changed into the same what? Akon in the Greek. Image. From glory to glory, even as by the spirit of the Lord. Do we not see the Trinity at work here because the Son displays the Father, the Spirit opens eyes, helps us see Jesus, and the entire Trinity inseparably is operating in the hearts of believers to change us. And that is why study the scriptures, mining them to see more of Jesus Christ. Oh, the knowledge of Christ is the outpouring of mercy. We love him. The hope of heaven is seen in Jesus Christ. The hope of perfect righteousness is known in Jesus Christ. It is the knowledge of Christ that draws the warmth to the afflicted soul. Maybe you were there this week. You were, you were in affliction. You were in trials. Oh, meditate on Christ and your heart will be lifted up and you will be changed to persevere even though the trials may get deeper. I was reading Gurnall this morning and Gurnall was talking about how sometimes you think your trials are making things worse and you're actually not growing at all. He says, well, that is because as a ship gets laden with more It is actually still moving so much more. And sure, a light ship may fleet over the ocean, but a heavily burdened ship is still moving and it's actually carrying more. And so in Christ, as he brings trials in our face, he is still moving us forward and we're carrying more burdens, but we're still moving. We're still going onward. It may not look like as much speed, but boy, is he bearing us up. The knowledge of Christ will heal the wounded soul who is dealing with sin. Maybe you came this morning with a guilted conscience and you, 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 you messed up this week again and, and your conscience is afflicting you. Well, the knowledge of Christ is the only way to get rid of that guilty conscience. Oh, the knowledge of Christ is always satisfying. It will never disappoint. You ever had food and you couldn't look, you, you couldn't wait to eat it. I haven't had that for such a long time. And you took your first bite. It's like, meh. I didn't quite remember that. It was disappointing. I've had that with coffee. It's a total side note. Sometimes I make coffee and it's just... And other times it's like, what did I do differently? Well, not so with Jesus. 
always satisfying. He never disappoints. And so don't pursue any other way. The knowledge of Jesus Christ always raises believers upward to the knowledge of God. Christ is the joy of the believer because meditating on him is meditating on God. And there is no higher one to meditate on. Perhaps you've been struggling at home right now. You're having a tough time in your family. You haven't shared that with anyone, but you know that. Perhaps, children, you are seeing conflict in your parents, and you don't know where to turn. Perhaps, parents, you are seeing children walking away from the things of God. Perhaps you have had a hard time saying no when you know you should say no to some things. And now you feel the burden of that guilt. Maybe you've been so callous hearing sermon after sermon, sitting Sunday after Sunday, and it frightens you how core at the core you are becoming apathetic. Apathy is a dangerous thing, isn't it? And it frightens you. Perhaps you're sitting here this morning and wondering if the vileness of your sins can be washed off of your heart because you've done things that no one else here you think has ever done. You're worse than the worst. The Apostle Paul talks about that. He says, this is a trustworthy saying and worthy of all our acceptation that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And just in case you think you're beyond saving, he adds these words, of whom I am chief, who persecuted the church of God and am not worthy to be called one of his. It is the Apostle Paul who would then proclaim him. He cast off everything, all of his credentials, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, the tribe of Benjamin, of the stock of Israel. He says, I was blameless in all these things I count loss, that I might know him. And he proclaimed him. Oh, dear people, turn away from everything else. All other things are crutches. They will fall over. They will not bear you up. But Jesus Christ came into the world to save people like you. And he is the glorious son. Look to him, the image of God. Adore him. Worship him. And be saved only through him. Amen. Let us pray. Holy God in heaven, we come before you and we recognize that we are unworthy, but you are worthy. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Oh, in you, Lord Jesus, we behold the Father. And as the Spirit opens our eyes to behold more of you, Lord, we are changed from one degree of glory to the next. Oh, Lord, open our eyes more to behold you. May we see our sin as you see our sin, and may we see the Savior as you see the great Savior. Oh, Lord Jesus, I pray for anyone here this morning who has been running, who has been just suffering under the rejection, under the the lights of this world, the godless exchange. Oh, Lord, command light to shine out of darkness. 
bring salvation, we pray. We pray for children that are lost. We pray for parents that are lost. We pray for lost neighbors. Lord, we pray for our leaders that are lost. Oh God, bring salvation. Advance your kingdom through the preaching of Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.